Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, so this morning, our scripture passage uh, comes from the book of Exodus. Or you'll, you'll notice that we're going to be in chapter 25 for just a few verses, and chapter 29, and then in chapter 40. So it might be best to follow along from what's printed for you in your worship folder or on the screen behind me. Uh, but if you want to pick up a Bible, you can do that and try to follow as we go. Uh, this Advent season, we're really doing a, a biblical theology of God's presence. And that it really is the wonder of the, the story of the Incarnation and the theology of the Incarnation that God wants to be with us. So much so that he came in the person of Jesus uh, to walk and talk with us. Uh, the way that he did in the garden with Adam, Adam and Eve. Uh, God wants to be with his people, among his people. And so we're just tracing out that theme as we go throughout the Bible because the Bible has a lot to say about it. Last week we said it's, it's really the main uh, narrative structure of the entire Bible is God's desire and his attempt and his giving even of himself in order to be with and among his people. Okay? And so this morning we're going to see that one of the, the, one of the things in the Old Testament that really brings this home to our hearts is the tabernacle. Uh, that the Lord commissioned and commanded of Moses to build, to be right there in the middle of his people as they journeyed through the promised land, okay? And in the same way, he comes to tabernacle among us and be with us as we journey uh, toward our home as well. So let's read in Exodus chapter 25, and then we're going to skip down to chapter 29 and 40, uh, and I'll just read as we go along from, from those places, okay? And the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 25, 1, And to speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution from me. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests, and I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then chapter 40, so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Uh, You know, until very recently, just in the last hundred years or so, one of the undeniable facets of of our archaeological study is that every human civilization uh, throughout all of history has shown an impulse to build temples or places of worship, houses for the gods that they worshipped and served to live in. And it's such a pervasive thing, it really does beg the question, why do you think that is? Why is it that all of those civilizations all had the same impulse to build some sort of house or palace or temple for the gods? And I really think it is because that every culture until ours has believed two things. First, that there is another world, 
beyond and above, or you might say behind the physical world, a spiritual world, a supernatural world, a place of ultimate reality. And then number two, that there was some kind of barrier between this world that we live in and that spiritual world. There was a chasm that had to be bridged, a wall that needed to be cut through, a door cut through it. Uh, we need mediation in order to get in touch with and experience the, the spiritual world. We need help to get into contact with that other place. But we live in the first time in all of human history where it is generally believed that you don't need to know about the spiritual reality in order to live effectively in this world. There may be something out there, you know, who can be sure? There may not be, but it doesn't really matter anyway. You don't need it. If it makes you feel good about your life, then okay, great, go for it, but it's not necessary. Everything, everything that you encounter has a this world application, a this world explanation. Every problem has a this world solution. And so concepts like God and soul and the spiritual life, it's all just superstition. The Bible, however, makes the bold claim that we were, in fact, made to live with God, to experience the overlap of the physical and the spiritual world. The Bible says that just as much as our bodies need food for sustenance, our souls need God. I mean, Jesus said that he was bread and that he was water. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And that word life is a very important word. There's actually two different words in the Bible that, that can be translated life and two very different ideas of life. The word, the word there is zoe, but the other word is bios. And what Jesus is saying is your bios life, your breathing in and breathing out life, your just getting up and going about your day life is dependent upon bread and water for sustenance. But your zoe life... Like the real life, your spiritual life, the life that is really life, abundant life, life that's characterized by love and joy and peace and contentment and all of those things, that life, that Zoe life is nourished not by bread and water, but by your faith and your daily communion with God. That's what Jesus says. Now, our culture, it's funny, it's just, it's really fascinating to me that we no longer believe in God generally. But at the same time, if you listen to people carefully, you'll notice that though people have a hard time believing in God, they really do miss him. We find it hard to believe, but we're not really ready to embrace the implications of living in a purely materialistic world. We don't, we don't like the idea of God, especially if, if that idea comes with him just intruding into our lives and telling us what to do. But we do like the idea that even though we really don't have anything to do with it on a day-to-day -day basis, that there are still places where we can go and find him if we were to change our minds someday. Which is why people who say they don't believe still come to the church to get married. Because we just can't get away from this idea of transcendence, and we know it should be a part of our lives. And that, that was the function of the tabernacle in the Old Testament law. It was the place where you could go to find God and to be with him and to experience his presence. It was a daily physical reminder to the people of Israel of the overlap between the spiritual realm and day-to-day -day life. It was a place that the people could be with God and God could be with them throughout all of their long journey to the promised land where they could have daily communion with him as they went 
step by step along the journey that God was taking them, okay? And in the same way, the lesson for us is, is that we need, we need a mechanism. Now, for us, it's not a building. You'll see that in a minute. But we need some, what, what is being, what the lesson that's being taught to us here is that we need this access to daily personal communion with God. The way that we need bread and water. Even more profoundly so. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. Bread's not enough. You'll die if you only have bread. Okay? But in thinking about the tabernacle, there really are a number of things that get, that get mentioned and that we need to make sense of. There is a longing and a leading and a lesson and a liturgy. That, oh, the Spirit's moving this morning. They all start with the same letter. A longing and a leading and a lesson and then ultimately a liturgy that all come from or that we see in the tabernacle itself as it's presented to us here in Exodus. So we're just going to walk through the text along those uh, four things uh, for just a few minutes together this morning. Okay, first, when I say there is a longing that is expressed in the tabernacle, I have in mind the revelation in chapter 29. So if you look, there's the second paragraph printed for you there. Verses 45 and 46, it is really remarkable. Listen to the longing of God here. He says, build me a sanctuary, and here's what he says, and I will dwell among the people, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell with them. God wants to be known. He wants to be near. Do you notice? It says that's why he saved Israel. Look at it again. He brought them out of Egypt so that he might dwell with them. It's even more explicit in Exodus chapter 19 where he, at the foot of Mount Sinai, he says this to the nation. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, I think, I think of Lord of the Rings every time, right, where they're rescued by the eagles, if you know the story. I, eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Here's what I want you to see, and this will be helpful for you, quarter turn in your life. God did not bring them out of Egypt and bring them directly to the promised land. He brought them to Sinai. God did not bring them out so he could bring them to the promised land. He brought them out so he could bring them to himself. Because that's the point. From the very beginning, he did not rescue them just so they could have a different set of circumstances. He saved them so that they could know him. So that they could worship him. Because that's the better thing. Now, if you go to a city commission meeting here in Winter Haven, they, believe it or not, still offer an invocation. And they even ask local pastors to come and offer a prayer. I've done it a few times. But if this text is true, it's funny that we still do that because... If this text is true, then God is not actually the one that needs to be invoked. We're the ones that need to be invoked. Mark Buchanan said it like this way, we need to be called to our senses to be as present to God as God already is to us. In the text, we've chosen to describe God's deep longing to be intimately related to us, to dwell with us, to be right in the middle of everything that's happening to us. And so here, here is the undeniable truth. God is not aloof. He is not standoffish. He is transcendent, but he, even in being transcendent, is not far away. He desires to be near, to be close, to be the physical center, you know, of our lives. And the reminder of this for the ancient Israelites was the tabernacle. It was a tent to house the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it was God's dwelling. And so Vern Porthris, who is um, an 
theologian and, and uh, biblical scholar, he said, God was not saying that he was majestic and beautiful, but he would not simply remain in heaven and let Israel go its own way. He would come right down among them. They were living in tents, so he too would be in a tent, side by side with their own tents. They were going to the promised land. He too would travel to the promised land with them, side by side as they journeyed along. The tabernacle... And Joe, or whoever's up there, if you have the if you have the image for me, the tabernacle. Do the other one first. The tabernacle, if you can barely see it there, was that to be the very center. This is an image that that describes how the Bible says that the Israelites were to lay out their camp as they journeyed. Every time they camped, all the different tribes would have their places. And then, if you notice, right at the center, and isn't it? It's interesting. It looks like a cross too, isn't it? Uh, but at the very center where the priests were, and then at the very center, and you see with the cloud billowing up from it, would be the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be the physical center of Israel's camp because God intended to be the center of Israel's life. And it's important in lesson, I think, there for us that God should be the very center of everything we do. He wants to be. He has come to be with us, but... But we still have to come to be with him. Elizabeth Barrett Browning writes it like this. She says, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush is a fire with God. But only he who takes, but only he sees who takes his shoes off. I mean, life is full of holy ground because God is present and yet we can remain unaware. The people we're living in tents, and so God would live in a tent. And I just love that, don't you? Listen, if you are living in a tent, I'm probably not going to come live a tent with you. I, unless it's a glamping tent, then maybe we could talk about it. But I'm not a big tent guy. I'm kind of what you would call indoorsy, right? <laughs> but God's heart is greater than my heart. They were living in tents, and he said, I want so badly to be with you that make me a tent too. And of course, it anticipates the incarnation when God would not just come to live in a tent, but would wrap himself in human flesh and blood to be made in every way, just like us, so that he might in every way be with us. Remember what the song says, come to earth to taste our sadness. Isn't that a great line? He whose glory is no, no end, come to earth to taste our sadness, even being tempted by sin, same as us but not like us because he never gave in to the temptation. Still, it says that he was compassionate. And that word compassionate means same suffering. In Jesus, God himself has suffered as we suffer. He has entered into the broken world that we inhabit to be broken by it himself. The incarnation, therefore, is the ultimate evidence of God's longing to be with us in every part of our experience of sin and the fall, to share our suffering to walk through it with us, to be an ever-present help in time of trouble for those who fear him. Isn't that great? There's a deep, deep longing. But secondly, not only do you see that there's a longing expressed, but there's a leading expected in the way that the tabernacle is constructed and the way it operates in the life of, 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 Israel's, of Israel's, you know, nation. Now, I'm going to be very short here for the sake of time, but I wanted to make this point because in chapter 40, if you look there at the third paragraph that we printed for you down Further to the bottom, it says this in verses 36 and 37, that throughout all their journeys, 
that there was a cloud. The cloud came to be in the tent, and they, that, the cloud was the physical manifestation of the presence and the glory of God among his people, and the cloud was there. And But from time to time, the cloud would be taken up and would start to move. And as the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, wherever it started to move, the people would gather their tents and would follow the cloud. But if it wasn't taken up, if it just stayed there, then the people wouldn't set out. They would stay wherever the cloud was. And so it's this idea of wherever God went, the people went. When God stayed, they stayed. When he went, they went. So this tab- the tabernacle was a, a sort of a mobile Mount Sinai so that God could go with them wherever they went. Or it probably is better to say so that they could follow God wherever he was going. Because it says the cloud began to move, they would move and follow it. If it didn't, then they stayed in the place where they were until it moved. So the cloud there Again, the physical manifestation of the presence and the glory of God. And they followed, they followed literally the cloud and the fire almost step by step throughout all of their wilderness wandering until they came to the land that he had promised. And I think it's a helpful image to describe, for example, what Paul means when he talks to us through the Galatians where he says, keep in step with the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.25, or walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those desires, the epithumia, the compulsive, enslaving epi-emotions and epi-desires that drive behavior. Paul says, don't be led along by all of these out-of-control things you feel on the inside. Instead, follow the Spirit. Obey God's Word, not your feelings. Go and stay according to what God is doing, which of course means you have to have a sense of what God is doing and not doing. And that's really hard because they had a cloud and we don't have a cloud. And they had a fire, and we don't have a fire. We don't, follow, we don't follow a cloud. Actually, if you read the New Testament, we follow the wind. That's what the Spirit's called, the wind. And it says in John 3, 8, that the wind blows wherever it desires, and you can hear it, but you can't see it. And you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. And so how, how you know, so it's, it's a much much more complicated prospect, which is why Jesus says very clearly to us in places like John 15, he says, abide in me, abide in my love, let my words abide in you. This is the only way that you can really make this happen. But what we're to see there, I think, is that every day, every situation, every new set of circumstances you find yourself in, good or bad, no matter how you feel, high, low, good, bad, It is an opportunity to be present to God's presence, to be led by his leading. And so the tabernacle also anticipates the Holy Spirit, which lives inside those who have faith in Jesus. And it's it's an amazing thing that in John's gospel, Jesus said to the disciples, he said, he looked at them at one point right before his, his arrest, and he said, you know, I'm going away, but don't worry. It's better for you that I go away. It's an advantage to you, he actually says, because if I go away, I will send the Spirit, and he will live inside of you. And the argument Jesus is making is, my Spirit in you is better than me beside you. And so if you're a person of faith, if you believe the Spirit in you is an even deeper experience of God's personal present. It is something better than even the disciples had with Jesus walking beside them. Don't think we miss out because we don't have a cloud. We have the Spirit in us. 
And the Bible says you don't have to go to a temple or a tabernacle to meet with God. The Bible says you're a temple. Like your, your, your person is actually the place where the spirit, there's a cloud like dwells in you. There's a fire, right? He baptizes in fire. There's the very presence and glory of God can come to live in you. You don't need a cloud. You don't need a temple. You are a temple, see? So there's a leading that I think is really, really significant here. But third, so you see that there's a longing that's expressed and there's a leading that's expected, but then there's also a lesson uh, that is, that's being tried, tried, that he's trying to drive home to our hearts here. Because the danger in all this talk of God's nearness and his imminence, the danger is to forget that at the same time God is holy, that he is other, he is transcendent. God is near, yes, but very clearly from reading these portions of the Bible where the, the tabernacle is spoken of in detail, you can't just come right in. There are barriers in the way. There's curtains and furniture and all of these things because of sin. There are barriers. There, there, there's things blocking you from coming into the immediate presence of God. And C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there's a door on which we've been knocking all of our lives. He meant we live with a deep sense that we are on the outside and we can't get in. That There's something at the heart of the universe which we feel cut off from. And the deepest longing of our heart is to find it and to be reunited to it. And he's just channeling what we learned in Genesis 2 and 3 last week, that we once walked and talked with God in a garden. We had his presence. We saw his glory face to face, and everything was perfect, but we lost it. And we were exiled away from his presence, away from the garden. And the door was shut, and mighty angels were posted. They were stationed at the entrance, at the door to the garden to keep us out. And the Bible claims that the Bible claims that as the psychological, emotional, spiritual substructure of every person's life. That there is a door that we've been knocking on. And until we get in, nothing will be right. There is a door that has been shut in our face and we're on the wrong side, and we will always feel a profound sense of displacement and alienation. But the Bible also describes the fallout of that in so many ways. It is the reason that we're driven to succeed. We want to be in the room where it happens, so to speak. It's why it's so easy to feel lonely or to be filled with self-pity when it seems like everybody else has it so easy, or everybody else is being celebrated and I'm not, or to get angry when it feels like people slam doors in your face. It's why relationships are so hard. We have, we have a sort of emotional, spiritual PTSD that we've inherited through thousands of years from the garden. And so we're touchy. We easily feel slighted. We assume that everybody else is an insider and not us which causes us to feel envy and jealousy. It's why criticism and gossip are such an easy temptation and so devastating because it's a way of keeping myself in by keeping others out, you see? And all of these things, all, I could, you know, go on for a long time there, but that's probably sufficient. And it all comes from a profound sense of alienation that we feel being alienated from God ultimately, but also from one another because of sin. And what you read in this, we didn't, for the sake of just time, we didn't read all of this, but the architectural design, or the word, there was a word as we read that I thought that's really the word. All The tabernacle, the pattern of the tabernacle, verse 9 of chapter 25, the pattern carries this lesson with it. 
And here, Joe, there you go. Joe anticipated me that time. Because this is just a, a kind of a, a map of what the tabernacle would look like. You see the arrow on the right side there would be the place where people would enter. There was a room where the people could come in and worship. And then beyond that first room, there was an inner room, which was called the holy place, where only the priests were allowed to go. And it was nearer to the presence of God where the ark was. But then beyond that, there was another room the most holy place where the ark stayed and only the high priest could go into that little part of the tabernacle and only once a year. And separating all of these different parts were curtains and woven into the curtain by God's explicit instructions between the holy place and the most holy place, woven into that curtain separating those two places were the cherubim with the flaming swords As a reminder of sin, the cherubim there from Genesis chapter 3, guarding the way into God's presence, a, a, you know, explicit reminder of our sin, which has separated us from God. And that's the lesson. The lesson is you can't come in to God. You can't come into God without first taking sin seriously. You have to deal with sin. You have to have a solution to sin. There has to be something that can make all that that went wrong right. And here's the thing, though. The solution, you got to have a solution to sin, but the solution isn't your solution. It isn't something that you do. It would have to be from God because there is no goodness in you that can make up for your badness. There is no obedience or perfection that can earn you your way in. The Jesus Storybook Bible, if you read what what we've suggested this week, it says it so well. It says, no matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. And that, I think, is the spiritual lesson of the tabernacle, was this. You're on the outside, and you don't get in You have to be brought in. A way has to be made for you by God's grace, not your effort, by God's strength, by God's doing and not your own. See, when Jesus, it says in the Gospels, when Jesus died on the cross, do you remember this? It says the the earth, when he breathed his last, the earth shook and then it shifts the scene from the crucifixion to the temple, and it says, and in that moment, that curtain, that curtain where those cherubim were guarding the way to God, that curtain was torn in two, and it says from the top to the bottom. Think about that detail, from the top to the bottom. It's a way of reminding us that salvation comes from heaven to earth. Salvation is what God does It's a grace. Jesus died and the curtain was torn in two and the flaming swords were sheathed and the way back into God and into the garden was opened. That's the lesson. In Hebrews it says, we read this, it's a remarkable passage there. It says that Christ entered the holy place. Now not the holy place in the earthly tabernacle, but the very presence of God in heaven. He died and was raised and ascended And in his ascension, he came before God to appear there on our behalf, offering not sacrifices of bulls and goats, but offering to God the sacrifice of himself for our sins. Once for all. I mean, very, very strongly. Once for all. And the lesson of that is if your faith is in Jesus Christ, 
then in believing in him, you've become united to him. You are united to him in his death. When he died, then you died. But that also means that you're united to him in his resurrection. If you put your faith in Jesus, then when he was raised, you were raised with him. But you're also united to him in his ascension. Which means, because he has entered into the very presence of God, guess what? You can too. All of the obstacles have been cleared out of the way. Jesus has earned the right of everyone who has no confidence in themselves but puts their faith in him to come right in because you are known to God by the record of his righteousness and not the record of your sins. And so Hebrews goes on to say, it's amazing. It says, so we can be, have confidence. We can have confidence to enter the most holy place. That's not at all the way it went. You know that when the... When the um, the high priest would go in, the one time a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his foot. Anybody, I mean, if you heard this detail, they would tie a rope around the foot just, just in, in case, you know, they're all there and they hear a, and they think, oh no, something happened and they have to drag him out because he died in the presence of God unworthily, right? We don't have to tie ropes around our feet to go in. We can come in boldly, it says. We can come in with confidence into the very holy of holies, the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by the new way open to us through the curtain, which is his flesh. The curtain torn in two. His flesh torn in two. So we can draw near to God with absolutely nothing to fear. That is amazing. It's amazing good news. Jesus is the way in. He is the only way in. And if you're in Christ, then you're no longer on the outside looking in. You're the ultimate insider because the Bible also says that the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is bringing you into the oneness that exists between the persons of the Trinity. You are in with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You could not be any more in. There's no way to be more in than that. And that's not just theology, it's experience, it's real life. And the word for it from the text is glory. Do you see chapter 40, verse 34, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, it says. Verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the glory of the Lord as it filled the tabernacle. It's, isn't that an interesting detail? Moses couldn't get into the glory. Moses couldn't get in, but we can through Jesus. Actually, in John 1, it says we've seen his glory. And then later in John 5, it says, you can get into the glory so much so that actually the way Jesus says it is, it's not so much you getting into the glory, it's the glory getting into you. That you can have it on the inside. That you can be filled with this glory that comes only from God and it can give you such a sense of inner peace and fullness that you won't ever feel like an outsider ever again and you won't constantly be looking for glory from other people and you won't be devastated by criticism and you won't have anything to prove in this whole new way of living. But... I need to finish because lastly, there are all of this, but there's also a liturgy because we forget. That's our problem. We need to remember, and we remember by practicing. And the tabernacle points us to that as well. So Vern Poitras, again, theology professor at Westminster, he points out that the sequence that the worshipers in the tabernacle had to follow, and this is all in the details, they would first come in. To, would, do you mind putting that back up, Joe, if you, if you can? I mean, it's not really important, but they would first come in. 
to the altar where the sacrifices were made. And then they would go on to the basin beyond the altar. It's a little pool there to cleanse themselves. And from there, the priest would continue into the holy place where the bread of presence was. And then on from there, the high priest would go into the most holy place where the Ark of the, of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments was. And Poitras noted that this sequence mirrors the story of Israel's exodus, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, and then the baptism into the Red Sea, and then the manna given to them into the wilderness, the bread, and then the meaning of God on Sinai to receive the law. It was all a liturgy that retold the story of their being saved from Egypt by the Lord. And we need liturgies that help us too, that help us remember. And that's what this meal is that we're going to celebrate in just a minute, isn't it? Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Do this to remember. Remember what? That it is not our blood, sweat, and tears that define our relationship with God. It is the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. That salvation is by grace. That we need... We need God the way we need bread and water even more so. See, we have symbols and practices that are analogous to the tabernacle. The water of baptism, similar to the water in the basin at the entrance of the tabernacle. The bread and the cup of communion, similar to the bread of presence on the table in the holy place. Because we forget and we need to remember. Because the sin underneath sin is gospel forgiveness. And the power for obedience is gospel remembering, repentance and faith. And by doing the same things over and over again until the lessons they carry get deep down into our hearts. And that goes for corporate worship, but also for private worship and communion with God too. And so let me just finish because I'm overdue. What's the takeaway? As we consider all of these things, what's the takeaway? And it's this little line, and I can't remember who said it, but I stole it. Pastors steal everything. You guys know this, right? I mean, this is no original thoughts. But I remember somebody saying it, it always, it always struck me and kind of stayed with me. You know, really the command of the scriptures, particularly in places like John chapter 15, don't, don't focus so much on being like Jesus. Just focus on being with Jesus. And you'll become like him. I mean, Jesus himself said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And you need to know, I'm, so, I'm a doer, right? I'm a doer. Enneagram 3, achiever. I'm a recovering Pharisee. I never, you know, nothing is ever enough. And so every morning, every morning, I recite that verse from John 15 to myself, to remind myself that my number one goal for the day is to be with Jesus, not to get things done for him. That's important too. When Ashley and I see one another at the end of the day, we always ask, how was your day? And usually, I've noticed, I usually answer that question one of two ways. I usually say, oh man, it was a really great day. I got a lot done today. <laughs> or, oh, it was a really frustrating day. I wasn't very productive. Didn't get anything done. Because, of course, by five in the afternoon, I'd forgotten what I prayed at seven o'clock in the morning. God's goal is to be known, to be near to have a deep personal relationship with you. He is, his name is Emmanuel. Do you know what that means? It's enough just to be with him. That's a good day. <laughs> Listen to this hymn, uh, an unknown origin, but it, it, it carries a good, a good um, reminder. Abide in Christ. This highest blessing gain, each day sweet fellowship with him maintain. Abiding, he and we are joined as one. In constant fellowship, all barriers are gone. Abiding, we are strengthened with each breath. In fellowship, his life will swallow death. 
abiding, all our sighing turns to song. In fellowship, our heart is gladdened, strong. Abiding thus, conformed to him will be. In fellowship, his life fills constantly. Abiding, we experience his power. In fellowship, his riches, hour by hour. Amen. Would you pray with me as we prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table now? So just take a minute, because I have to put a microphone on and it's kind of tricky. Take a minute and let's just abide. Let's, let's find a way to connect with God in the quietness of the moment. Take a minute just to ponder, to try to make yourself as present to him as you possibly can. Prepare your heart to receive from him. So, Father, we confess that we are so prone to think that just being with you is not enough, that there must be something that we must do to make ourselves fit enough, to make ourselves good enough to come into your presence and to be with you. And all you ask is that we would come. We don't have to make ourselves beautiful. You beautify us by our coming. And so as we now gather around this table this morning, would you, would you help us to abide in you? Would you nourish our souls with your body broken and your blood shed the way you nourish our bodies with food and drink that we might have all that we need to follow you in obedience and faith? And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All of that, that you might know that he is the Lord, your God, who has saved you, and that he might come to dwell with you. And isn't that what the promise of the benediction is? That because of Jesus Christ, you have no need to fear going into the very presence of God. You can come boldly to him this week because of this promise he makes to you. This is the promise that he goes with you to be with you and everything that might come uh, to you this week. So receive this promise of the benediction of God's presence and his smile and his favor resting upon you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so if your faith is in Jesus, these are your words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.